Thanks for listening and sharing our body politic. As you know, we're new and creating the show with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. The first two weeks of January 2021 already feel like a century. There's a lot that's happening that women of color around the country could have predicted even when most people didn't believe them. I call it the Black Cassandra Syndrome. I wrote about the rise of white supremacy in politics in 2016 and predicted both the outcome of the election and the political violence before either of them happened. Now, I made those predictions based on pattern recognition. I've had to hone it just as a Black woman, also as a reporter, and a lifelong learner who studies history, sociology, and behavioral economics. That may feel like an I told you so, but it's not. It's more like a listen to us next time and every time. On this show, we don't just interview newsmakers. We're understanding advanced pattern recognition and journalistic exploration, amassing the tools that we all need to survive, thrive, and rise. The Our Body Politic team wants to be of service to you as we navigate these trying times. There's a lot on our minds this week, and I am so excited to have our contributors, Aaron Haynes of the 19th and Jess Morales-Roqueto of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, on board to talk it all over in our new weekly politics roundtable later this hour. So stay tuned for that. And throughout this episode, we'll go over the varied news items and analysis coming out of the aftermath of January 6th. Those include if and how Congress is going to hold its members accountable for their role in the events of January 6th. Some members reportedly gave reconnaissance tours of the Capitol to domestic terrorists. We're going to talk about the second impeachment of President Donald J. Trump and the overt white supremacist and nationalist violence in the Capitol siege and the increased security threats ahead of Joe Biden's inauguration less than a week from now. We'll get to all of that and more First, a conversation with a woman whose work will shape the historical record about the outgoing president. Letitia Tish James was a New York City public defender and a city council member before becoming New York State's attorney general in 2019. She's the first woman and the first Black person elected to the office. This year, Attorney General James filed a lawsuit aimed at dissolving the NRA, successfully blocked immigration officials from making arrests in and around state courthouses, and is leading a lawsuit against Facebook for stifling competition. Her office is leading an investigation into President Donald Trump's finances, which she intends to continue after he leaves office and even if he pardons himself. That pardon would only protect him from federal prosecution. Welcome, Attorney General James. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So you are obviously a New York state official, not a federal official. So how, if at all, do the recent events on Capitol Hill affect what you're doing? Is it, you know, speeding things up or pressure or is it just the same as usual? Um, You know, it's unfortunate that we all witnessed an attempted coup, an attack on our democracy. And the president and his associates who have 
um, question the legitimacy of this election, have blood on their hands. Um, these wild conspiracy theories that led to these acts of terror and sedition. It uh, was an attempt to basically destroy our democratic republic. And so all of those who are responsible should be held accountable. And, you know, I've called on the Justice Department um, to begin an investigation into the attempted insurrection, attempted coup, and to hold all of those responsible for their roles in, in fanning the flames that led to this failed coup. Um, we are t- working um, with justice to identify those individuals who breached the Capitol. And we will do all that we can to identify those individuals and to send the message um, that it will not happen again. And it certainly will not be tolerated um, in the state capitol in Albany. And tell us a little bit about the values you hold dear. You've talked about um, how your work is rooted in your values. What are those values? Um, freedom, opportunity for all, mm-hmm. equal application of justice, and a sense and a, and a fair and equal administration of justice. It's for me, it's really all about simple justice, um, sweet, simple justice for all of us, regardless of your station in life, your position, how much wealth you have. We should all be treated equally and fairly, um, consistent with the 14th Amendment of our Constitution. And how did you become the person you are now? Um, you are you go by Tish, I understand. And. How did um, Little Tish become Big Tish? And who were you as a kid? How does it affect who you are now? We love we love asking these questions. We've asked it several times of powerful women who we have on the show. I come from humble beginnings. I know what struggle is all about. I've tasted um, the pain of discrimination and racism. And I know what it's like to struggle each and every day. And so I'm reminded of that each and every day as I walk the streets of my community Um, as I worship with uh, members of my church, as I see the pain and struggle of so many individuals in this city and in this state and in this country, um, uh, I can relate to them. Uh, And so it's important uh, that we have individuals of of government who who look different, um, who understand what it's like to struggle, to suffer, uh, and that um, we just not have a government which reflects those who were born with golden spoons in their mouths. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm living in Maryland to be closer to family because that's what pandemic sometimes does to us. But I have lived in New York most of my adult life and I generally live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And I was saying to a friend that just getting up to go to work in the morning back when we left the house uh, to commute was painful to me sometimes because I would see so many hardworking people struggling and then um, also see a gentleman who sleeps in a doorway near the train. And he went to high school with one of my neighbors and is severely mentally ill. And, um, that's where he sleeps, in the same doorway every day on a pile of blankets. And every day to wake up and leave the house, I had to prepare myself to see the suffering. And um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to pretend it wasn't there. So every day I kind of, you know, just faced the reality. Um, why is New York City and and so much of America a place with such extremes of, of wealth and poverty? And how does that relate to application of the law, do you think? So a lot of 
um, the policies in the city and in the state are intentional. And so oftentimes you see the result of those, the disparate treatment of those who have uh, been invisible for far too long. Um, The question is, why is that young man um, who obviously has a drug problem, a drug addiction, and who is homeless, why is he sleeping in the subway or in the alley? It's because we've closed um, homeless beds. We've um, we've got um, we don't have we don't have enough hospital beds. We don't have enough treatment beds. Um, Our priorities, um, unfortunately, really don't reflect um, the the felt needs of uh, New Yorkers and or Americans. And that's why we have an opportunity as a result of this pandemic, because it has laid bare the racial disparities. Um, It has laid bare the racial defaults. We have an opportunity to reimagine government, invest um, in the needs of individuals who are struggling under the weight of poverty, those who are struggling with addiction and homelessness, the feminization of poverty, and the list goes on and on and on, suffering from food insecurity. We have an opportunity to address that. Um, We have an opportunity... um, uh, to use all of the wealth of this of this the greatest nation on earth to address the needs of Americans and New Yorkers who are hurting right now, we've witnessed it all. We've seen it all, and so we, when we come out of this on the other side of the mountain, it's important that we just not return to normal. Mm. It's important yeah. that we restructure government. And you've been working on um, guidance for evictions. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, there's a moratorium on evictions in in certain instances. People are having a difficult time making ends Mm -hmm. meet, paying their rent, putting food on the table, et cetera. And so um, it was important that we impose this moratorium. And so we worked with the governor's office, the office of court administration, not only with regards to tenants, but those who are having a difficult time paying their mortgages as well. We work with the the governor on a wide range of issues to address, as I indicated, the felt needs of New Yorkers who were struggling at this point in time, given, um, uh, given, unfortunately, the economic situation of the state of New York. New York State is uh, suffering a $14 billion deficit. Um, New York City is facing a deficit. And so um, in the coming weeks and months, the city and the state um, in various localities all across the state will be, you know, adopting austere budgets. Um, but now that, you know, we have a president who is a sympathetic president, an empathetic president, and a wonderful vice president who shares his values, um, we could issue stimulus checks to the tune of $2,000, hopefully $2,000. We can pass an infrastructure bill to put people back to work. We can uh, we can talk about our environment We can talk about reproductive rights and respecting the rights of women. We can defend the Affordable Care Act. We can protect our immigrants. Mm -hmm. Those are the priorities. Those are the values that I hold. Um, And I look forward to working with the Biden administration um, to make this a more perfect union. I only have one more question, and that is, what do you do to um, fill your well? You know, you've mentioned that you go to church just give us an example of one other thing, whatever it is, that allows you to keep doing this work. I walk a lot in my neighborhood. 
I talk to children. I talk to senior citizens. I laugh a lot. And I sometimes I'm in my home and I dance with complete abandon. Mm, Yes, dance like no one's looking. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, you certainly have a lot on your plate and we're very grateful that you made time. Thank you, New York Attorney General James. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Tish James, Attorney General for the state of New York. Coming up later this hour, a new politics roundtable with our favorite political experts. What really struck me is just, yeah, I mean, frankly, the hypocrisy. I mean, when, when, we, when we were on the ground in places like Ferguson and Baltimore and, uh, you know, covering uh, the emerging Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, it, it, we were questioned about, you know, whether we could objectively, you know, kind of cover uh, this movement, uh, even as our lived experience, frankly, gave us an advantage to, to seeing uh, that story and to understanding uh, the dynamics of what we needed to be talking about. You're listening to Our Body Politic. So many of us were watching on January 6th when right-wing supporters of President Donald Trump violently stormed the Capitol building. Later, the president was impeached by the House for incitement of insurrection, and many are now calling it an attempted self-coup or an attempt by a sitting leader to stay in power longer. Very few Americans were actual eyewitnesses to the siege of the Capitol that blocked a timely electoral college vote count. One of them, however, is my next guest, Jasmine Uyoa. She's a reporter for the Boston Globe, here to give us her firsthand account of the day and how it plays into her lifelong mission as a journalist. Welcome, Jasmine. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, and I'm just, you know, been really appreciative of your work. Um, what's sticking with you now that we've got a few days distance from this event? What pops to mind as you think about what you did and what you went through? I guess now that I've had some distance from it, and is, I mean, I haven't really had a chance to process because it's been, you know, things have been moving a mile a minute here in D.C. Um, I think it's it's anger. It's 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 a growing sense of anger. And this is what I'm hearing from a lot of people who were in that building that day is just that we had no idea just how much danger, how much in danger we were. You know, I used to be a former crime reporter, so I think I was very laser focused on just doing my job. But of course, I mean, it felt it was stunning and it was surreal and it was shocking to be going through it. And at the same time, it felt very, very familiar, uh, having covered this this administration for the past four years. Tell us what happened and, you know, what was your assignment? Where were you positioned? And then what unfolded? I was in the Senate press gallery when the shuffling started among the, the Senate the Senate press aides. And they told us, you know, we have a plan to lock ourselves in here it was all very hypothetical. You know, as they said, if, if the protesters if the protesters get in, we have a plan to lock the doors. The aides looked tense, but everybody thought, oh, that can't possibly happen. You know, it's so hard to get into the building with even just with forgetting your badge. You know, it's it's, it's super hard. So we didn't think, A, that protesters would, would breach the building and, and B, that they would reach the third floor where we were working. Moments later, the radio on the, the Capitol radio uh, crackled and you can hear, you know, the warning coming in saying uh, that you can move inside the, the building, but but please stay away from the windows and the doors. Moments after that, a reporter bursts through the room and says, Mike Pence, who'd been presiding over the electoral vote count, has been evacuated from the room. And everybody just started scrambling at that point. 
the, the Senate aides were trying to, to close the doors and given us a choice, you can either stay or you can go, but it has to be one or the other. We have to lock these doors now. Uh, so uh, uh, several of us, and there, were, there weren't many of us that day. It was only a, mm-hmm. a handful uh, because of COVID. So we ran outside um, and we rushed outside and a, cu- a couple of us tried to go down the stairs and the, pr- the, the I should say, rioters at this point were already going um, up the stairs. And my mind went right away to El Paso because I had covered the, the shooting uh, mm-hmm. a day or two after El Paso. And I thought, OK, well, this one is an arm, but will the next one be? And so I quickly went back up the stairs and got a better look from from the top. And it was, uh, you could tell the, the officers at that point were, were trying to, to get us out of the way. They looked just as confused as we were and, and scared, I'd, I'd say. And I'd, I'd watched both processions. I'd watched the procession of, of senators taking the votes in the mahogany boxes mm-hmm. to, to the House. And then I'd waited and, and, and watched you know, them come back after the Arizona objection or the objection to the Arizona um, Electoral College votes. And once the senators had cleared, you could already hear the 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 chants growing louder inside the mm. Capitol Rotunda and just echoing across the marble uh, hallways. Um, and and you know, a couple of us looked at each other and said, "Wow, that's that's pretty loud." Yeah. Uh, so we already knew it was going to be a very unusual day. What drew you to do this work? I mean, being a crime, you're still. I mean, I know age is relative, but compared to me, you're quite young and you, you've been doing some pretty hardcore work for a while now. You know, more than four years ago, <laughs> I really wanted to cover Mexico for a major newspaper. And I approached two editors at the South by Southwest conference in Austin. I was I was covering courts, state and federal courts at the time. Mm-hmm. And late, late, the next day she got back to me and she said, actually, you know, the position that you'd heard might might be open has already been given to a an internal candidate, but you should really consider this this position in Sacramento covering state politics. And you know Donald Trump had al- had already you know descended down the escalators in New York yeah. uh, and launched his campaign, demeaning Mexicans and immigrants. And so I realized, well, there's a really big role I can play here. You know, the story is actually here. Mm-hmm. My, my journey into into journalism itself, uh, you know, started in El Paso. I was a reporter for the high school paper and, mm-hmm. you know, women were disappearing across the border from my hometown in, in what, what is known as the Juarez femicides. And so I first realized I really wanted to dedicate myself to that profession was interviewing mothers who had lost daughters. So I think that that's when I realized words have have, have power. And you covered the mass killing in El Paso, where people were explicitly killed with a xenophobic agenda of killing Latinos. What was that like? It was very hard. I went to high school five minutes from there. Um, mm. and, and to be there uh, just just a day after this, this killing, I think in some ways that was harder for me than covering the insurrection in, in the last few days because... I'd have the the protective shield of a crime reporter, right? The shield that you get when you're going in into this into into a scene, and it would just there were these moments where it was just completely shatter. I'd run into someone I know at the memorial, or mm-hmm. you know the photographer I was with. He was a, a freelance photographer for the Globe. He was from El Paso, and so like things just clicked between us right away because he just felt like I'd known him forever. 
it, things would get very heavy. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? What do you do with that pain that you are witnessing because you have chosen this profession? I channel it uh, right into my work. I channel it into my words. I, I channel it into trying to do better each time, especially, you know, after the shooting, I, I, I had a lot of conversations with friends um, and just hearing how, how proud they are of me. <laughs> it makes yeah. me want to cry right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just hearing, just hearing how proud they are of me. You know, when I had a friend would tell me, you know, you're telling our stories and I just think about that every time I'm, I'm doubting myself. Well, again, I hope we can speak to you further in the future and really appreciate your work and your time. Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jasmine Uyoa covers national politics at the Boston Globe. Coming up on Our Body Politic. Uh, the, the rise of, of white supremacy uh, as it has been emboldened yep. in these past four years. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that, that was not a conversation, and, and it should have been. Frankly, it, it should have been, and and I'm glad that that folks like you are amplifying it now, uh, because uh, guess what? We were not post-racial in 2008, and we're not going to be post-racial after January 20th. So, you know, I would hope <laughs> yep. that that for folks who are covering uh, politics going forward, that they have a working understanding of the history of race and racism in this country, because it is absolutely necessary. Stay tuned for our very own inauguration by which we mean our new regular politics roundtable with contributors Aaron Haynes and Jess Morales-Riquetto. That's coming up later this hour. Stay with us. Each week, we bring you news from the front lines of the pandemic with a focus on how people of color are faring. The U.S. broke two painful records already this month, for the first time surpassing 300,000 new cases in one day, and also in one day, 4,000 deaths. Some of the hardest-hit communities are majority people of color. In one mostly Latino neighborhood in East Los Angeles, one in 10 residents has tested positive. Most of those who get sick recover within a few weeks, but for some, COVID symptoms can morph into chronic conditions that last for months, maybe even longer. Dr. Vineet Chopra of the University of Michigan has studied so-called long-hauler COVID patients. Here he is on the Today Show. The public think about COVID-19 as a disease that you get, like you get the flu, you know, you get sick, you get better, um, and you go on life as usual. It's not a one-and-done disease. There's evidence that COVID infection can lead to long-term heart, lung, or kidney damage, even cause cognitive problems and memory loss. Some patients experience depression, anxiety, or mood swings. Jessica Hewlett was diagnosed with COVID in March, and she still has fatigue and memory problems. She spoke to Yahoo News about her experience. I've been talking a lot to my primary care doctor. She has kind of admitted, she's like, we don't know. Like, we don't know how long you're going to be sick. We don't know what's going to make you better. We don't know why you're still sick. Long-hauler COVID is twice as common in women. Also, more people of color do essential work, so they're more likely to get COVID in the first place. They tend to have less access to health insurance and quality medical treatment, so chronic conditions can be devastating. People of color are also less likely to have access to paid sick leave. Shamir Smith is a teacher and COVID long-hauler who spoke to The Washington Post. I do not know if I am developing chronic fatigue syndrome. I do not know if my brain will ever work again the way that it did before. 
In next week's COVID update, we're going to focus on vaccinations and the road ahead in a Biden-Harris administration. We'll catch you up on what's possible. My next guest, Mignon Moore, has been a force in politics for decades, behind the scenes. She was a senior political advisor to former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton during the 2008 campaign. And before that, she served as White House Director of Political Affairs and Director of the Office of Public Liaisons under former President Bill Clinton. Now she's advising Vice President-elect Kamala Harris as part of her transition team. Hi, Mignon. Welcome to Our Body Politic. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So you're someone who has been a through line in American politics, and some people know you and some people don't because you are working your magic behind the scenes. How did you decide to jump into the ring as a strategist? Well, I tell you, it goes back to my roots in Chicago. I had literally started my first campaign when we were electing Harold Washington to be the first Black mayor. I gathered up a few of my friends and went down to his office and said, hey, we'd like to volunteer for your campaign. And they gave us a table and a desk and we became his youth coordinators. And that's where I think I got the official bug to work on campaigns. But what it taught me to your exact question is the power of working for and on behalf of your elected officials. Chicago, of course, like so many cities, like my hometown of Baltimore, is a city divided by race and class. And of course, our whole country is. Some people see it, some people don't, but I think everybody sees it now. And looking at what just happened at the Capitol building, Mm -hmm. um, insurrection, domestic terrorism, you know, how do you believe that your perspective of being from Chicago and just being a Black woman and a political strategist gives you the ability to see what's going on and describe how you, you know, kind of how you are processing this moment. Chicago, as you know, is a very, very activist city. And so I was involved in boycotts and movement building, you know, especially through Operation Push, then they became Rainbow. And so fighting on behalf of disenfranchised people and making sure that I see a 360 view of the world has been a part of my life and my fabric. I think if you transport that spirit to today, and frankly, if you look at the the way our current president used that office to incite and to demean and to really set a tone for this country that has been highly unusual. Not only is it sad, it is dangerous. And we saw the vulnerabilities of our members of Congress. I think people, what people forget about this Washington, D.C., we have co-equal branches of government. The president of the Mm -hmm. United States is one branch. Congress is another branch. And what he did was destroy or help to destroy and incite and destroy a branch of our government. Mm -hmm. There is a new administration coming in. um, And you have been working with Vice President-elect Harris. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your your role in relationship? Sure. I've known her since her uh, days as a district attorney. And uh, we have we we were friends for many, many years before I decided to take on the role of transition director for her. 
But I will say to you, what is amazing about her is not what you see on TV. It's what, you know, it's what Dr. King used to say all the time. The measure of a person is not what you see in daylight, but it's what you see when the lights are out. And she has been a voice in these rooms with her colleagues, with President-elect Biden. She tends to bring up points that are probably thought about, but she voices them. And I, I laughed with her last week and said, you know, if I need somebody in the foxhole with me, I think I'm taking you. Mm, because mm. what I know when she's in that room, she is representing the best of who we are. She's representing women well. She's representing black people. She's representing people of color. She's representing people because the one thing that I know about her is that she is adding to, not subtracting from. Before we let you go, I just want to bring up a book that you wrote. It was really with what I think of as a super group of Black female political strategists, Donna Brazil, Yolanda Carraway, Leah Daughtry, and yourself, for colored girls who have considered politics. And of course, with the assistance of the ace writer, Veronica Chambers, if there are people listening who are those colored girls who have considered politics, give them one short thing to keep in mind. Be true to yourself. And I go by this ethos of Maya Angelou. If you get in the room, take courage with you, because without that, you won't speak up. Mm, those are wise words, and I would expect nothing less. <laughs> Mignon, thank you so much. Thank you. That was political strategist Mignon Moore. Each week, we invite you to participate in our show by calling into the Speak platform. We've been asking you if this was your first day in office, meaning as president, what would be your top priority and why? This is what one of our panelists had to say. So if it was my first day in office as president, my top priority would be corralling the governors into a weekly cadence whereby we make progress on the deployment of the COVID-19 vaccine. And that would free me to do whatever we need to do to cope and heal and move forward from what happened on Wednesday. To share what you do on your first day in office, leave us a message by calling 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or go to ourbodypolitik.show and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. Coming up next... There's not going to be more uh, security or harsher dictates on all those white supremacists. It's going to be on people like me who are, you know, who are, are fighting against, uh, you know, in favor of immigration reform and clean air and water and, and the BREATHE Act, you know, for criminal justice reform. That That's like actually what's going to happen. And... You know, I have, I have even in the past had members of Congress um, aid me in getting inside a room or having a, or knowing about, you know, what, what a, what time a hearing was going to start, stuff like that. Um, but I've also had members of Capitol Police stop me in the, in the Capitol building, in the Hart Senate building and say things to me like, you've been here every day this week. What are you doing here? So. Because you fit the profile, Right. You know, if, if you don't know what I look like, I'm actually very light skinned. So the fact that I'm getting stopped means that, you know, dark skinned, Latinx people, black folks there, you know, I can only imagine what's happening to them. 
our new weekly roundtable, Sipping the Political Tea, with political experts Aaron Haynes and Jess Morales Riquetto. Okay, folks, I am going to just tell you that today is like Christmas, New Year's Eve, and Super Bowl Sunday for a political junkie like me. I am so excited to introduce a brand new segment to Our Body Politic, a full-length politics roundtable, sipping the political tea. Each week starting today, I have the pleasure of inviting two stellar political ninjas to help us dissect the news. Erin Haynes is a veteran political journalist and editor-at-large at the 19th News. She's also a regular on Our Body Politic. And Jess morales Roqueto is the Civic Engagement Director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She's the co-founder of She Se Puede and was the lead digital political organizer for Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams. Twenty twenty one. I just don't even believe it's a thing. And now, Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Farai, I'm definitely canceling my trial subscription to twenty twenty one. This is not working out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And hey, Jess. Hey there. I'm feeling optimistic. Maybe I'm the only one. No, I'm feeling optimistic about the long run. Not so much about the short run. For I've been. Uh, avidly watching your Twitter account over these last couple of days, and you've had some really important discussions on on your social media about efforts that you've made in newsrooms to cover white supremacy and obviously white supremacy and how journalists cover it. It could not be uh, you know more hot off the press right now. How can the media do better? Because I think that you all, the journalists, are are really making sure that the public is informed about a real threat that exists in our country right now. Yeah, I mean, so just to give a little background on on what I've done, I've worked at places including Newsweek, CNN, NPR, ABC, um, produced my own independent radio documentaries, uh, during which uh, I interviewed Sheriff Joe Arpaio who, of Maricopa County, Arizona, who really sort of built the infrastructure of, you know, weaponizing attacks on Mexicans to get votes. And so um, I was working during the last election cycle, 2016, at 538, and I have—I tried to do my job, and um, I didn't get to do my job as well as I would like, and and it really made me sad. And so I ended up writing right after the end of the 2016 election. I wrote this uh, blog post, 4,400 words, called The Call to Whiteness, basically— Um, And the subtitle talked about how there was an inadequate establishment whiteness response. And what I meant by that was that people who consider America a meritocracy and whiteness to be of no particular influence on that meritocracy were not challenging the dominance or the rising dominance of the white nationalist narrative to establishment whiteness. Basically, White nationalists are like, no, it's not a meritocracy. We need to have an advantage, and we will do it by force if we need to. And so I won't go 
too deep into that rabbit hole, but this is not just a failure of, you know, white supremacy and white nationalism. It's a failure of what I call establishment whiteness to take a threat to their own, you know, cultural dominance seriously. I was there to say, look, American politics has many different types of political organizers. White supremacists are political organizers. Mm -hmm. They are political organizers and have been since the beginning of our democracy. So let's stop putting them in this little box as, oh, those weird people doing those weird things off in the corner. They are your lunch lady, your teacher, your congressperson. You know, um, Adam Serwer has a piece called The Respectables, which we may talk about more later, about how Olympic gold medalists and active military members have been arrested for sieging the Capitol. That's that's such a good point that you are making, Farai, and and it is worth uh, pointing out here as as we are uh, transitioning, you know, from the Trump administration to uh, you know th- this new uh, Biden administration uh, because of of the black journalists that that tried to talk about uh, you know the role of of race and racism in our politics and our democracy that we have seen over the past at least eight, if not twelve years. Uh, you know, in terms of modern politics, um, what really struck me is just, yeah, I mean, frankly, the hypocrisy. I mean, when when we, when we were on the ground in places like Ferguson and Baltimore and, uh, you know, covering uh, the emerging Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, it, it, we were questioned about, you know, whether we could objectively, you know, kind of cover uh, this movement, uh, even as our lived experience, frankly, gave us an advantage to, to seeing uh, that story and to understanding uh, the dynamics of what we needed to be talking about. And so, you know, there, there uh, has never been a question in these past four years about whether uh, white folks were, um, you know, uh, you know, could be objective about covering mm-hmm. um, whiteness as an identity, as identity politics, right? Uh, the, the rise of, of white supremacy uh, as it has been emboldened mm-hmm. yep. in these past four years. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it, that, that, that was not a conversation and, and it should have been. Frankly, it it should have been, and and I'm glad that that folks like you are amplifying it now, uh, because uh, guess what? We were not post racial in 2008, and we're not going to be post racial after January 20th. So, you know, I would hope <laughs> yep. that that for folks who are covering uh, politics going forward, that they have a working understanding of the history of race and racism in this country, because it is absolutely necessary uh, to cover this democracy and to cover our society. Uh, going forward. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of talk about Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, uh, who was seen with his fist raised in support of uh, rioters last week. Uh, And both uh, Hawley and another Republican senator, uh, Ted Cruz of Texas, who, of course, ran against Donald Trump in the 2016 uh, Republican primary before becoming an ally of of the president's. uh, Neither of them backed down from from their objections to uh, the certification of Biden's presidency, uh, even after the violence of January 6th. So, uh, you know, Jess, I'm going to come back to you. Can, can we assume that, that Cruz and Hawley are kind of posturing themselves as the figurehead for Trump supporters and their resentments? Uh, yeah, I feel like it's really important to remember that there's Trump himself as a figure, and then there's also Trumpism is part and parcel with what the Republican Party is now. And Ted Cruz has kind of been, frankly, you know, a, a Trump, a Trumpism follower for a long time, even before the 2016 election. But you see now Holly trying to kind of get in um, 
the mix there and make his bones as like a, an heir to, to Trump and Trumpism. But I think even more than that, the person that I really think is trying to be a figurehead for Trump and his supporters in their resentments is actually Mitch McConnell. He doesn't do the press in the same way, but the all the tenets of Trumpism are absolutely there. And he's way savvier than a Cruz or a Hawley. You know, we are in a very precarious moment right now. Um, and our country's leaders, they're literally not safe, like walking around in the United States Capitol, which is scary. Completely agree, Jess. I, I would say that one framing that I want to put on the table is that I do think I understand a little bit about some of the motivations. People are getting high off of this, you know, and um, there is an emotional high. Like, you know, human beings are a chemistry experiment within a biological construct. We're getting serotonin and cortisol and all these different things happening. And, you know, some people get a rush from doing things like storming the Capitol. And this was a planned siege. And just imagine all of the chemicals running through people's bodies. And it comes out of a belief system that they are doing the right thing. Like, we can never forget that in that framing, they were doing the right thing for democracy. And once you begin to at least understand that framing. You understand why people are willing to risk death, risk arrest, and risk democracy. Well, and and also what their understanding of democracy is, right? And that was something I wrote about, uh, you know, in my piece uh, after the insurrection, because um, it is not a coincidence that that this came on the heels of, of the Georgia Senate runoffs, uh, where you saw Black voters, uh, again, uh, really showing up and showing out to uh, overcome voter suppression, right? And there had just been this ongoing drumbeat from the president, uh, you know, in, in claiming voter fraud, uh, claiming a rigged election, claiming illegitimate votes, right? Like those, the votes that he was talking about were Black votes. And so the idea that, that the election was somehow not legitimate because this many black and brown voters, uh, you know, had had participated uh, in the election uh, that he lost, you know, that was fueling what we saw. And so, you know, rebelling against that uh, was was as much a part of what we saw as, as anything. And so, you know, what I basically wrote was, you know, while, yes, you know, we can talk about this as being, you know, a, an attempted coup or an attempted insurrection, uh, the other piece of this is that, uh, you know, this had the air of a public lynching in a, in a, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. So, so historic. The, the, uh, there, there was that actual um, noose, you know, yes, hangman set up there. Down. Absolutely. There was mm-hmm. a gallows, but, but also just the, the atmosphere, um, you know, the, mm-hmm. just the, the way that they were, you know, roaming uh, the halls of the Capitol looking for folks to hold accountable, uh, you know, and not just the vice president, but, but. Uh, some of the uh, lawmakers that, that the president has frequently invoked and 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 uh, demonized, had those people been found, uh, you know, who knows what would have happened. Uh, but but wanting to make examples out of those people so that folks who were thinking about exercising their access to democracy uh, again going forward uh, would would be intimidated and maybe not do that. Uh, you know that is that is a very real component uh, of this. I want to jump in and talk a little bit about the aftermath of the storming of the Capitol um, and exactly how we saw white nationalism and supremacy weaponized in politics to the risk of 
loss of life for members of Congress. We know that people did lose their lives uh, in, in the siege, but in addition, the panic buttons in Ayanna Presley, Representative Ayanna Presley's office, were ripped out prior to the siege. We are now hearing reports, including from a, a sitting member of Congress, um, that uh, some of her fellow Congress people may have given reconnaissance tours to some of the insurgents, domestic terrorists. And that's all playing out right now. So we do know that Representative Presley and her husband knew that they had lost the ability to communicate about the threats. Jess, what are you tracking from all this? You know, one thing that is so clear, I think, from this this moment, both that members of Congress, you know, potentially aided in helping people um, understand the lay of the land and how aggressive it got, how large it was. Like, this is not the fringe. (laughs) But members of Congress are not, you know, don't have to act on behalf of anybody, but really but themselves and their constituents. And so I think there's two things here that really scare me. One, that members of Congress would act on behalf of people that they potentially knew were going to um, be armed in the United States Capitol because folks did say that they were coming with guns and stuff like that. And also that they felt like they could do that. Um, like they felt like it would be okay with their constituents. They weren't worried about anybody finding out about it or, um, you know, or being against it. And to me, that is really, it is really quite scary because that means it's not just those people. I am of two minds about this though, because I am a person who plans a lot of protests, including at the United States Capitol. Mm. And what I know about these situations is there's not going to be more uh, security or harsher dictates on all those white supremacists. It's going to be on people like me yeah. who are, you know, who are are fighting against, uh, you know, in favor of immigration reform and clean air and water and and the Breathe Act, you know, for criminal justice reform. That that's like actually what's going to happen. And you know, I have I have even in the past had members of Congress um, aid me in getting inside a room or having a or knowing about you know what what a what time a hearing was going to start, stuff like that. Um, But I've also had members of Capitol Police stop me in the the Capitol building, in the Hart Senate building, and say things to me like, you've been here every day this week. What are you doing here? So Because you fit the profile, right? You know, if if you don't know what I look like, I'm actually very light-skinned. So the fact that I'm getting stopped means that, you know, dark-skinned, Latinx people, Black folks, they're, you know, I can only imagine what's happening to them. And I feel like what I don't want to happen is as we head into this new Congress and a need to move forward on an agenda that helps move us past this Trump moment, that there's just going to be a huge crackdown on people speaking on behalf of our democracy. And I think that's the important distinction. They have to be speaking on behalf of our democracy. These folks were not doing that. Um, They're speaking on behalf of white supremacy and racism. And what they're willing to, the links that they're willing to go to um, are really scary. And that deserves, you know, an investigation by Congress, journalists to talk about it, people to consider it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, to both of you, anything in the last week uh, in our politics that surprised you? Uh, what about you, Fry? No. I mean, I hate to say this, but like I've been done called this, as we like to say. It It doesn't give me joy that my essential predictions turned out to be right. But I will also say I'm not surprised by any of it. Yeah, no, look, I, Black 
women, I think Black women uh, journalists uh, especially, uh, were trying to uh, report on this long before uh, you know, the events of January 6th. But anyway, Jess, let me bring you into this. What do you think? Anything surprise you uh, in the last week? You know, I'll take it in a totally different direction. So I've been really getting into TikTok as a source of joy. And a thing that really surprised me is the Zoomers, the, the kids on TikTok were so clear about the politics of this moment. And, <laughs> you know, they were funny, but also very sharp about what was happening you know, pe- they were calling folks in, but then also being satirical about it. And I ca- that kind of, I sort of needed that both um, the incisiveness of, of these little TikTok commentators, mm. but also um, kind of the reminder that what's happening is temporary. Like, I do think that this is the last gasp of white supremacy in the way that it currently exists in the world. There are people who understand what's going on and what this urgency is, and they're like the high schoolers and like new, you know, very young adults. And that's great because those ones are the, those are the people who are going to be in charge sooner rather than Mm. later, I think. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I couldn't agree more, Jess. I mean, I'm getting all choked up because like we haven't left the world in great shape for them, you know? So look at us. We are ending. That is surprising that we were able to end on a high note. And Aaron, any quick final thoughts on kind of where you or others might take the story from here from a journalistic perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think that that uh, the um, concerns raised by uh, Congresswoman Presley and, and uh, Ocasio-Cortez and others uh, in the wake of, of this insurrection really do underscore the need for a full airing of, of what happened, uh, a you know public hearings, um, you know testimony, and a full investigation. You know that is what we would do if 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 this had happened, you know, in any other workplace in this country, mm. and and it and that is what we should do in in this case. I want to thank you both for joining me for our inaugural political roundtable, sipping the political tea. So excited. Aaron Haynes of the 19th and Jess Morales Riquetto of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, you'll be joining me each week on Our Body Politic. Thank you. Thank you. Let's do it again next time. I want to thank all of you listeners for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is presented and syndicated by KCRW, KPCC, and KQED. It's produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Our political booker is Mary Knowles. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistants from Mark Betancourt, Michael Castaneda, Sarah McClure, and Virginia Laura. Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.